So welcome to this Bible study in the book of Mark. We're going through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, looking at Jesus, the beautiful Savior. I want you to remember that he is the central character of the Bible. He's the central character of the Gospels. So as we study through, you will see different people, like the crowd, or the Pharisees, or the disciples. But uh, and, and it's very important. They are part of the story. It's not that they don't matter. But Jesus is the main character, and we want to keep our eyes focused on him and learn about him mostly. So today we're going to learn something very amazing about his power, his ability to confront the leaders of Jerusalem, the religious leaders, and to begin something brand new, taking extremely bold, courageous steps, see something of the incredible movement of people and of, of God that is among the people. So great study today. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this moment that we can take to open the Bible, so open our hearts and our minds and our spirits and help us to learn and grow and to uh, see this wonderful Savior, Jesus, your Son. We ask this in his name. Amen. I'm going to begin reading from Mark chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and we're looking at three different stories today. The story today begins with Jesus in a synagogue. After that time, after another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. So what do we see here? We see Jesus in a synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand. This is a disability, a, a deformed hand. Now, because it says shriveled, the idea there that's used, the word that's used, is the same word that's used for a plant that has uh, withered. So it seems that perhaps this man wasn't born with this condition. Perhaps it was an accident. Perhaps uh, something wrong where uh, something went wrong and his, his arm began to wither. But nonetheless, a man with a withered hand, I think when we don't have any disabilities of these kinds and your body's pretty healthy and strong, it's easy to read over these and just move forward and not think about it much. But take a moment to think. Basically, this man would find it hard earning a living, providing for his family, doing the basic, thing, basic things that any man would want to do as a, as a husband, as a father. So he's in this synagogue, shriveled hand. Who else is in there? Well, we see some of them. We find out in a bit these are Pharisees and Herodians. They are evidence gathering. These are the religious establishment and they're watching to gather evidence, to put a case together against Jesus, trying to find a reason to accuse him. They're watching for him to make one mistake in his words, one mistake in his actions. And so they're, they're, they're especially watching this thing of the Sabbath. They're so hooked on this. They're so bothered with the Sabbath. So what happens? Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Now, this is quite interesting. What Jesus is about to do, he's not going to do quietly. He's going to make a real scene. He gets the man to stand. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? So he is sort of presenting to the crowd two options. It's the Sabbath. Which is better, doing good Saving life, restoring life, or, option two, do harm, kill, destroy. 
Now notice he's not asking the Pharisees. He's having the man stand and he's asking everyone. So it's really putting the Pharisees, religious leaders, on the spot. But everyone is watching. Certainly everyone would agree it's better to do good, to save life, to just to, not to kill, and to destroy life and do something evil on the Sabbath. But they know that he's going to trick them into something. Of course, if they say it's, it's you should do good on the Sabbath, then he's got them st stuck in this little uh, plot that he's laying for them. So it says, they remain silent. Best answer. He looked around the, at them in anger and deeply distressed. Very interesting uh, comments on Jesus' uh, uh, feeling here. Uh, sometimes a lot of believers, I find, have a problem with anger. Uh, I don't mean anger problems. I mean, they have a problem thinking that anger is wrong. It's not wrong. It's an emotion. It's wrong what you do with it. It's wrong how long you hold it and harbor it. But it's an emotion, and he's deeply distressed. This is, this is a deep feeling of, of misery that he's feeling. Why? At their stubborn hearts. They won't just answer the question, yes, it's better to do good. Lord, you're right. Heal on the Sabbath. They won't. So he's very distressed. So he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. What this means is this man received his life back. For this man, this is the most amazing day in his life. Put yourself in his shoes for a moment. Here you are in the synagogue. You have a withering hand. A problem with this hand is deforming and deforming worse and worse. You can't earn a living. You're struggling to survive. And one day in the synagogue, Jesus does this to you. If you ask this man later on in his life, he's 80 years old, let's say, and you ask him, tell us about one of the highlights of your entire life. This story would be one of the first he'd, he'd mention, if not the first. This is the, one of the most exciting and happy days of his life. He stretches out his hand, and immediately it's completely restored. So Jesus is not just giving him a restored hand. Think about it. He can now get work. He can do the things that a father, a husband would want to do. He's restored this man's life. Beautiful. But what about the Pharisees? They went out and began to plot with the Herodians. The Herodians are people who follow Herod the king. So there's two groups here. They're plotting how they might kill Jesus. This is amazing. Greatest and happiest day in this man's life. They don't rejoice. They're not celebrating. What are they doing? They're angry and they're plotting a murder plot to kill Jesus. This is so typical of religious establishment, of people in power in religious places. They are insecure. They are cronies. They're a good old boys club. They hold together as one and don't rock the boat. Jesus is drawing crowds. Jesus is teaching with power and authority and he's healing and they don't know what to do about it. The people love him and they hate that. They are jealous. So instead of being happy with this man, they see what's happening and they go out with an intent to murder. So their, their motivations and their, and, their, and their aims are very apparent. Right on the surface, we can see it all. But I want you to see a little bit why. Now, here we've had a specific story, and I told you this before. You'll see specific stories, details, and then we'll draw back and we'll see a, a big picture of what Jesus is doing and what's happening. Notice this in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people 
came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. I want you to see what's happening here. People from Galilee and also from a number of regions are mentioned here coming to Jesus. So first of all, I want you to see how the distance is, that they're, where the distance is that they're coming from. Now, I mentioned the lake. That's the Sea of Galilee. It's the Lake of Gennesaret. Exact same thing. That's where it is. Let's zoom out for a moment. So people are coming from this region, Galilee. They're coming from Judea, which is to the south, the city of Jerusalem, Idumea, which is further south of Judea. It says across the Jordan. Frequently, we think of across the Jordan and the name Decapolis or ten cities is mentioned. It doesn't say Decapolis, so it might be. It's probably some of those cities, but basically the people from the other side of the Jordan River. And then it mentions two cities, the regions of Tyre and Sidon, so quite a ways moving north. So you see the distance that people are coming from. Now, it says something interesting here. Because of the crowds, he told the disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep people from crowding him. The word for crowding here is the word crushing, crushing him. So you see how far away people are being drawn to him. And the crowd is so thick with people that Jesus is being crushed by the crowd. And he wants the disciples to get a boat so he can actually get up a little bit distant from the crowd. So don't see this as Jesus not wanting to touch the dirty sinner. He doesn't want to touch the commoners. No, it's not that. He simply is being crushed and needs to get a little distance from the people so he can teach. So a boat is made ready. So no wonder these Pharisees are jealous. This is exactly what they want. They want the crowds to follow them, but they're not. They're not. Nobody follows rule makers and, 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 and rule givers and strict religious people. Jesus is bringing life and healing and something real. And the people are drawn like a magnet. And so let's see why. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. For he had healed many. That's giving us the reason why people are drawing from so far away. Why this crowd is so big that it's pressing and crushing him. Because he had healed many. So that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Do you get the picture here? People pressing through the crowd. As though if I can just push through and get to him and just reach out and touch him somehow, I'll be healed. And that's what people were doing. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell anyone about them. So, this is interesting. The demons themselves are crying out that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, we see this in the Gospels. This is a powerful testimony of who Jesus is. Mm. If you think about it, we know there's demon activity, uh, but, but uh, for these demons to actually be screaming in terror, fear of being tortured, fear that this is the moment when the king of kings is going to judge them, it shows they don't understand the timing of God. It shows that they're fearful in submission of Jesus and his judgment that is coming upon them. And they scream out in terror. But Jesus, again, gives strict orders, it says, not to tell others about him. Seems a bit of a confusing phrase, but I believe it's pointing back to the demons. This is what Jesus awfully always did with the demons. He told them to be quiet. 
He was not interested in the demons giving a testimony, giving a witness to who he was. It, was, it sort of presents a distorted picture, if you see what I mean. Demons out declaring that Jesus is the Son of God, even though it's true, even though it's, 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 a, it's a right statement to make. The, the source of it, the demons, no, it's not going to come from their mouth. It's going to come from the lips of people declaring who Jesus is. So he tells them, quiet. Now, we zoom back in again from, from the, these broad details. So we, we can see how, how a specific story, the tension that's developed between these religious leaders, their, their power base is threatened. They're insecure. They're fearing that. They're insecure. They're cronies. They're good old boys. They have the religious club. It's being threatened. Why? See the crowds. See the healing power. See the demons talking and the demons being cast out as Jesus is touching and healing. So he has something. Jesus himself is God, and he's the Messiah and great power. And so the great crowd is drawing near to him. The Pharisees are jealous. They're now beginning to plot his murder. And Jesus does something really interesting. He begins to show that he's, he's setting a new order in place. He's going to choose some men, and, and he's going to use these men for the advance of his kingdom. And it's not just these 12. There are many others. At one point, Jesus... Uh, chooses 70 men. Another point, we read about 120 in the upper room. So there are, there are different groups of people that Jesus chooses. And we see this again here in verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and he called to him those he wanted. And they came to him. So we see that it's not simply uh, the 120 or the 12 at this point. It's a larger group. Jesus says, hey, you, 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 you. I want you to come. I want you. I want you. I want you. Come up here follow me. So they do. They come and follow. And it says, uh, among those, then, he appointed 12. Well, that's interesting, because after Jesus dies and raises from the dead, he's only one, but these men, now 12, can go much further than he can. Same is true with you and me. By the power of the Spirit, we can be in many different places bringing the good news of Jesus. So if you see the point here, it's the numbers. It's multiplying the numbers. The second thing we see here with him choosing 12 men is that God always chooses men and uses men. So Jesus is showing that this is just not for him and the crowds to come. There's a time that he will die, raise from the dead, and return to heaven. He will give the Holy Spirit, and it's for us people to bring the good news. So, so he's appointing these 12. He's, he, he's showing them that I'm passing this on. At this stage, I'm going to pass this on to you. But he chooses these 12, why? So he might spend time with them. Now that is an amazing truth. And I just want to stop on this for a moment. I often found it interesting how we see discipleship in the Bible. It just means students, people that would follow along and learn. The method of learning in Jesus' day was not that you subscribed for an online course. It was not that you went to a Bible college, a seminary, a university somewhere. You went to a guru, a rabbi, a teacher, and you spent time with that person. You lived with that person. Why? Well, number one, you heard what they taught. And that was important. And you adopted those teachings. You learned those teachings. But number two, you saw how they lived. You can only see how someone lives by spending time with them. What time do they wake up? What's their attitude throughout the day when problems arise in their life? Are they an angry individual or are they quite pleasant? 
are, uh, you, you learn with Jesus, these men would be learning how he prays, when he prays, how he dealt with people, how he taught, not just what he taught, but his methods and watching. So quite uh, a beautiful thing, a common pattern. And I would say today it's really important that we learn to do the same thing. There's only so many people you can spend time with. When you're going to take a smaller group and spend time with them, not simply a coffee, not simply a breakfast, spending time around them, there's only so many you can do that with. But that's the point. It's giving what you have to those others around you. So you not only spent time with them, but why? So that he might send them out to preach. So they were going to go out and share this good news to tell the good news. Again, a very important point that we see that the gospel is not simply showing good works and showing good deeds. Now, I know that Jesus said we should do good works so that people will see our good works and they'll, they'll bring praise to God. They'll be drawn. They'll know that we are Christians by our love for one another. So those are important things. Those are important drawing cards. People see the reality of love when they see our lives. But we have a message, and if you do not open your mouth and speak the message, it will not enter the ears of individuals and enter into their soul and allow them to believe. So the same is true for every one of us who came to believe. Someone spoke, and when they spoke, we heard, and when they heard, we heard, we believed, and we called on the name of the Lord. So the message includes talking, and so he's sending these men to preach. And the preaching part we really don't like sometimes because that's the controversial part. If we keep our mouths quiet, we can be uncontroversial. But these men were going to cause great controversy wherever they want, and we're going to see that wherever they went. And we're going to see that in just a moment. So he did this so they also might have authority to drive out demons. So Jesus is not only having this authority, but this, this is an amazing, almost mystery here. He's able to take that authority and sort of give it, almost like you'd give chocolate, or like you would give uh, a job description and title. He's able to transfer the authority over Satan's kingdom to these men. We're going to see them out casting out demons. And that same power and that same authority is with the church today to drive out demons and through prayer to see amazing miracles happen. Personally, I'm not the sort of person who is a strong believer in large healing meetings with an individual healer. I believe that, but the, I still believe that God gives the body of Christ the power for prayer, the power to see miracles happen and to see demons driven back as the body prays. It's a together thing that we exercise as a body. And we need to be careful, in my opinion, of reading these verses, skimming over them, and missing this. Good works are important, but so is the preaching, so is the power. I want to finish with showing you not only that he chose these men, but I want you to see where they want, went. And I want to uh, encourage us with where we might also go. Verse 16, these are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanjeries, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So I want to show you uh, a, a map, and I'm going to disappear here. You're going to hear my voice, but I'm going to be behind the slides. I'm going to look at a few of these men. 
beginning with Peter. Now, I want you to know that some of these, there's a lot more detail on. We can be more certain. Others, there's church tradition with details from the Bible. Others, there's simply church tradition. And some of that tradition is more reliable. Some of it's more debatable. So I'm going to present to you the best I can of where these men went and who they were. Peter, we know he was a fisherman. He had a fishing business. He began teaching and preaching in Jerusalem. He ended up in Rome, and that's where he died. It's said that he died crucified. James, fishing business as well. He died in Jerusalem, the first one of the apostles to be murdered or martyred. Acts chapter 12, verse 2, you can read about that. John, James' brother. He was also a fisherman, fishing business. And John ended up his life in the town of Ephesus, which is in Turkey. And he is one of the few, perhaps the only, of the apostles who lived to be an old man into his, into his 90s. And then we read about Andrew. This is Peter's brother. He also was a fisherman. So these first four men had a fishing business, and they were fishermen. Now, Andrew, it's thought, went into Ukraine and then into Russia and later ended up in Achaia, and that's where he died. There's a little bit of uh, unknown around this. It's a little bit difficult to determine exactly was it Achaia, did he die in Russia, but this is what tradition holds. We don't read this in the Bible. We also see Philip. Philip, we don't know anything about his livelihood, what he did. But he was, according to tradition, in the area of Phrygia, which again is, is sort of a central western Turkey, and that's where he died. And then we read about Bartholomew or Nathaniel. It's said from tradition that he was in eastern Turkey and then into Armenia into regions of Iraq and Iran, and then there's sort of question over whether he ever went into India or not. Uh, and so probably, more than likely, he died in Baku, which is, which is uh, in today Azerbaijan. And uh, some say that he died in India. It's thought that he died by being skinned to death in Baku. Uh, so horrible, horrible, wicked death this man died. Matthew, tax collector, we actually looked at him earlier in the story, so I'm not going to be long with this. He was uh, in more than likely in Ethiopia and then again in Iran, where he died a martyr's death. Thomas, we don't know what he did for a living, but it's thought that he may have been in Iran. If it was in Iran, it was for a short season. He uh, ended up his life in India, in Chennai, and there's a church that traces their foundation to him from 52 AD or 54 AD, he was killed and martyred as a, as a testimony for Jesus in Chennai. Then we read about James, the son of Alphaeus. James went down into Egypt where he preached and was killed and martyred. And then there's Thaddeus. We don't know much about his livelihood, what he did for a living, but he is thought to have been in Assyria and later on into Iran, where he was again killed for the gospel. And then there's Simon. I've said Simon the terrorist. You say, wait a minute, it's Simon the zealot. Yes, this is what this word was. Jewish terrorist organization. Uh, some would call it a rebel organization. So forgive me if my words seem a bit extreme, but I think that captures part of what he was involved with, in. And 
he uh, ended up going down into Egypt to share the gospel, and as well in Iran, where he was martyred. So here we have a bit of the story of these men. I hope that helps, that map and some of their livelihoods and what they did. Let me just finish with this. It's interesting, you see the kind of men Jesus chose? They were not educated in religious schools. They were common people, people with businesses, uh, tax collectors, as we read before. Matthew, somebody who uh, was notorious sinner and had a lot of notorious sinner friends. People like Simon, who was nowadays somebody we would equate with a terrorist. Interesting band of people that Jesus drew. Remember, they didn't remain what they were. They didn't remain notorious sinners. They were changed by the power of Jesus, and they went out to teach and preach. And it shows us that what Jesus does, he does this again and again. He does it today. He's not interested in working with religious cronies, with established religiousment, establishment and religion. Jesus works with people. He takes individual people. He calls them to himself. And listen, listen to this for a moment. Why is it important to study the Gospel of Mark? Why is it important to study these Gospels? Because you can do what these disciples did. You can spend time with Jesus by reading them. You can see what he did, how he did it, learn his methods, learn his teaching. And not only does he want to make you clean, give you a new heart, but he wants to give you a purpose and a destiny and send you out. And so you're actually able to spend time with the master when you spend time in the Gospels, and you're able to learn from Jesus, to be discipled by him, to be prepared to be sent out. Jesus circumvents. He circles around. He doesn't often go through the religious establishment. He works around, calling individual people to go and to share a message in the power of the Spirit to other individuals, to other people. It's something that no country can stop because it's something that has no borders. The Holy Spirit has no boundaries and borders. He works in individual hearts. He brings salvation. He brings change. He empowers. He mobilizes. And he's still doing the same thing today. Where will he send you? What will he do with your life? As we see these apostles, the disciples, Jesus spent time with them so that he might send them out to preach and have authority over demons. Jesus does the same thing today. So there's hope, there's encouragement that God can take you. He can use you for the advancing of his purposes and kingdom. Be blessed.